Welcome, fellow explorer. You're just in time. All the arrangements have been made, and we are about to set sail on a great adventure. You have been selected to travel with Renegade Files, your underground connection to paranormal events, unsolved mysteries, and covert culture. I'm your guide, Lex Gordon, transmitting this confidential signal from the Jungle Villa outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 13, Ancient Advanced Technology, and it is part two of our Egypt series. Egyptologists tell us that the complex and precision stone artifacts found at ancient sites such as Maidum, the Valley Temple, the Giza Plateau, and up and down the Nile River Valley are just coffins, funerary decorations, and pragmatic crockery made for the Egyptian pharaohs and the common people of the dynastic eras. But the craftsmanship of the granite boxes, stone vases, and other artifacts is far beyond the stoneworking methods used by the ancient Egyptians, and well beyond the capabilities of the tools found in their archaeological records. And the ancient Egyptians themselves described an advanced civilization which predated their own by tens of thousands of years. Is it possible that a far advanced civilization existed which possessed high technology that could account for the astounding workmanship and fabrication of these stone objects? Objects so precise, enormous, and alternately delicate that we can scarcely reproduce them even today. And if such an advanced civilization did exist, what happened to them? As in part one of this series, which was Renegade Files episode two, The Great Pyramid at Giza, I have to thank Ben at Uncharted X for his exhaustive research, including his excursions into the field in Egypt and other ancient sites around the globe. I also want to say thank you to Chris Dunn for his work. I'll link to Ben's podcast and Chris's website in the show notes. Thanks, guys. Now join me on another adventure as we go back to ancient Egypt for part two of our Egypt series to explore the evidence for ancient advanced technology. Ancient advanced technology. Ancient advanced technology. Part one, the precision granite boxes. The box at my doom. The ancient structures and main pyramid at Meidum, that's M-E-I-D-U-M, are far less preserved and as such lesser known than the three main pyramids on the Giza Plateau. However, this monumental complex holds much evidence of advanced technologies as well as varying construction methods and timeframes. Maidum is the southernmost of the ancient pyramids positioned along the banks of the Nile River at a location about 60 miles south of modern-day Cairo. Today, the remains of the pyramid at Maidum consist of the remaining internal stepped structure surrounded by the eroded and crumbling outer casing. At one point, this structure would have been the size of the Red Pyramid, but since the outer casing was built on a foundation of limestone blocks and sand, it collapsed. It could be that the outer structure was added much later, and the original stepped pyramid was the true design and construction of this large building. 
the internal stepped remaining part of this pyramid persists because, like the pyramids at Giza, it is anchored on the foundational bedrock of the terrain itself. This pyramid at Maidum is historically attributed to Seneferu, the first pharaoh of the fourth dynasty of the Old Kingdom. Seneferu is also said to have built not only this pyramid at Maidum, but the Bent Pyramid and the Red Pyramid in the 24 years of his reign from roughly 2613 to 2589 BCE. There is no doubt that this pharaoh existed and that he used these sites for various purposes, but the idea that he would have built three pyramids as tombs for his one self and in 24 short years, never mind the fact that no bodies or mummies were ever found at any of these locations, seems illogical to say the least. For a full analysis of the unlikelihood of the mainstream view on Egyptian pyramid construction, be sure to listen to Renegade Files episode number 2, The Great Pyramid at Giza. Just because Seneferu spent time at these locations or even carved his name into some of the rocks does not mean he constructed everything we see at these sites. I could write my name on the Golden Gate Bridge too, that doesn't mean I built it. And as obvious and ridiculous as that sounds, this is exactly the evidence used to attribute the Pyramid at Maidum to Seneferu. His name appears written on the stones of the temple in front of the pyramid, so it is assumed that he built everything we see here. In addition to the main pyramid at Maidum, crumbling as it may be, there are multiple structures and underground chambers at this site. In this section of the episode, we will look into one such megalithic chamber under a construction known as Mastaba 17. A mastaba is a flat-roofed, mud-brick structure with inward-sloping walls and many are thought to have been used for ancient tombs. Mastaba 17 is 100 meters long and about half as wide. As the name implies, there are many other mastabas in this area. Mastaba 17 was studied extensively by explorer and archaeologist Flinders Petrie, who wrote two books on the complex. The first, titled My Doom in 1892, and My Doom and Memphis in 1910. Petrie excavated the Mastaba down to 48 feet on his first visit and found that the entire structure had been built inside a 20-foot deep pit with surrounding limestone walls, and these walls were inscribed with geometric lines that served as alignment guides for creating the overall structure itself. It wasn't until 19 years later upon a return visit and further exploration that Flinders Petrie discovered the deep underground chamber he believed to exist at the heart of Mastaba 17. What Petrie found was an astounding megalithic chamber shaped roughly like a T, with the longest gallery, the base of the T, connecting to a chamber that contained an incredible discovery. The main gallery of the chamber is 8 feet high, 4 feet wide, and 40 feet long. The sides and floor are gigantic stones of several tons each fitted together with remarkable precision. The chamber is capped with enormous rectangular roofing stones weighing 38 tons each. And all of this is under 100,000 tons of stone and mud that was used to create the mastaba structure above it. Inside this chamber was a 12-ton red granite box with a matching lid. 
Petrie calculated that the enormous granite box could not have been maneuvered through the galleries and hallways of the chambers, and so it must have been placed there, then these megalithic chambers built around it. The red granite box weighs eight and one half tons. The perfectly matching lid weighs three and a half tons. Both are made from a single piece of stone that would have weighed more than the current 12 tons because the box is, in fact, hollowed out in perfect right angles to form a rectangular space inside it. The enormous stones used to build this underground gallery and connected series of chambers are fitted together with the same mortarless seams we see in other gallery constructions along the Nile River Valley. Some of the stones are formed to make the inside corners of the hallways, and their dimensions and spacing when compared to the outside corners formed by the blocks on the opposite sides of the halls are utterly perfect, parallel, and straight. So the corners of the hallways aren't made by stacking one square block against another square block to make a right angle, which is the easiest way to do it, but the final block in the course has a right angled segment that is part of that stone and forms the corner, against which the next block is fitted. This allows each block to fit against a seamless continuum as the hallway turns. This would be a very difficult process to replicate even today, but it has the effect of making the chambers extremely stable and durable. This chamber was also completely sealed and had never been accessed by design after the mastaba had been constructed over it. This direct tunnel, which apparent ancient thieves used to break into the gallery, is an indication that whoever constructed it had knowledge of the original plan and knew the location of this underground gallery, especially to make such a long, direct, complicated tunnel right to their target. The sealed nature of the deep underground chamber beneath Mastaba 17 and the vast differences between the precision design, fitment, and polished seamless walls of the chamber itself and its 12-ton precision granite box with perfectly matching lid that would have had to have been placed there and the remarkable chamber with its 38 ton roof tiles built around it creates a striking contrast to the mud and limestone chip mastaba built over it. It seems as if the older, deeper, and far more mysterious underground chamber was made using far superior tools and methods than the newer, clumsy, and crumbling structure we find it buried under. And in general, this is not the way technology is supposed to work. The older methods are not superior to the newer ones. And I want to tell you a little bit more about Flinders Petrie. He was very much like a real Indiana Jones. He surveyed British prehistoric monuments when he was just a teenager. At 19, Flinders Petrie produced the most accurate survey of Stonehenge ever created, and we still use his measurements today. He was a professor at University College in London, and he explored ancient Egyptian sites at a time when few other modern scientists had. He was the first to apply systematic methodology to both archaeology and the preservation of artifacts. He lived from 1853 until 1942, when he died at the age of 89. I am making a bonus audio episode all about the amazing, adventurous life of Flinders Petrie and you can listen to it on the Renegade Files Patreon page where you can get tons of extra content and help the show stay independent 
and ad-free. Thank you. The Box at Ilahoon. The Pyramid at Ilahoon was also explored by Flinders Petrie, and his book, Ilahoon, Cahoon, and Gurab, was published in 1891, and it contains his drawings of the shafts and chambers he discovered and delved into. At the bottom of the main shaft, he discovered a square tunnel that connected two chambers, one walled with white limestone and the other walled with granite and with a dazzlingly arched granite ceiling. Inside the granite chamber, he found what has been called the most precise object ever made. When Petrie found this box, it was exactly like it is today. There is nothing inside it. There are no markings on it or in the room where it sits. It is made from a single piece of red granite and there is no lid. For some reason, one end of the box's exterior is four inches higher than the other end, but the interior of the box is perfectly symmetrical and of equal depth throughout. This additional exterior material gains at a slope across the bottom so that the box on its level floor is tilted up at one end. The box is once again too big to fit through the tunnels or the doorways leading to it. This box also has a thick squared rim surrounding the top. These two features, the higher end and the lip, make this box unique among the other precision boxes found in Egypt. The margins of error in the straightness and angles of the box are minuscule. For example, the variations from perfectly parallel between the interior walls from one end to the other is within one one-thousandths of an inch. This perfection is consistent across all of the box's surfaces relative to each other, and it is inconsistent with the levels of precision possible to achieve by using copper chisels and diorite hammers to bang off chips of granite and form something into a shape. The inside radiuses of the interior corners of this box are extremely fine, at about 7 tenths of a millimeter. So, if you stuck a 0.7 millimeter tip fine point gel pin into one of the inside corners of this granite box, each side of those two box walls would touch the pen tip on each side. The precision of this geometry is consistent throughout the box, even extending to the corners of the undersides of the wide lip that caps the box top edge. The edges of the outer corners of this box feature a consistent 45 degree bevel, as do the corners of the granite blocks that make up the room itself. Upon discovering and measuring the box in 1891, Flinders Petrie wrote, quote, the sarcophagus is perhaps the finest piece of mechanical work ever executed in such a hard and difficult material. Across the top length of 106 inches, the error off of a perfectly straight line is within seven one-thousandths of an inch. Petrie called the surfaces most exquisitely flat. He also pointed out that even more remarkable than the sheer perfection of straightness, flatness, and parallelism is the astounding perfection among the ratios between the dimensions of the box, of the box's accuracy of proportions. 
So within these exceedingly tight parameters of thousandths of an inch, each of the box's sides are the same widths. The entire coping lip is the same thickness and the walls are the same thickness on every side. To quote Petrie one last time, this is far more difficult as it requires all of the previous accuracies and in addition a truly divided scale and irredeemable truth of work since nothing can be corrected by removing more material." End quote. The box and the room are perfectly aligned to the cardinal points of the compass. Some ideas are being explored that consider the use of geopolymers or ground up and mixed aggregates that are poured into a mold and then hardened. This theory has been used to explain not only the precision granite boxes, but the casing stones and construction stones of the giant pyramids themselves. First, we know the quarries where the black and red and white granite used to make these objects comes from. We have examples of some granite stones still in the ground midway through the quarrying process. At the Great Pyramid of Giza, you can see sections of the bedrock where stones have been cut away to use in other places on the complex. And all of the boxes, as well as the casing stones and construction stones on the pyramids, are different sizes and shapes. If you are going to make a mold to create building materials for a pyramid, why would you make two million different molds? Doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of making a mold in the first place? There are marks from giant circular saws on granite blocks all over the Giza Plateau. Finally, granite is naturally formed from multiple materials and types of stones. This is what gives granite its wide variety of colors and patterns. Granite can be composed of quartz, feldspar, mica, and more. These chunks of material form an aggregate that is granite and the various sizes of the internal stone types are different sizes given which quarry the granite comes from. Some of the granite boxes show clear veins of varying stone running through them. This effect and the aggregate chunks of various stones we see in the granite boxes and in the granite used to build the finely fitted megalithic rooms and structures like the Great Pyramid and the many quarries where we find the exact same stones is inconsistent with a geopolymer process. And once again, we find these precision granite boxes in locations where the older, deeper constructions and contents are of vastly more precise and sophisticated workmanship than the buildings or halls created above or upon them. This indicates a likelihood that these deep chambers and the incredibly precise granite boxes could have been inherited by the Egyptians from a much older but more advanced civilization. We think of technology advancing as it moves forward, and in an uninterrupted timeline, this is exactly the case. Two situations exist then that ironically refute the idea that these boxes were created by the Old Kingdom dynastic Egyptians. One. If the dynastic Egyptians built the pyramids and somehow made these astonishingly precise granite boxes, why then did they stop making such monuments and objects? And two, modern science has now revealed a cataclysmic era around 12,800 years ago, most likely caused by a meteorite strike resulting in abrupt drops in global temperatures and the extinction of the megafauna. 
This resulted in the demise and eventual vanishing of the Clovis culture, a prehistoric Paleo-American culture of skilled hunters that we know made use of at least 125 species of plants and animals. The Younger Dryas Mini Ice Age has been a central part of a lost high-technology civilization hypothesis championed by Graham Hancock and recently validated by scientists at Harvard who have found evidence supporting the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis at 11 different continental Younger Dryas sites. In addition to this, even the skeptic Michael Shermer, who famously debated Graham Hancock on the Joe Rogan podcast, tweeted to Graham Hancock saying, quote, Okay, Graham, I shall adjust my priors in light of more research like this and modify my credence about your theory. So it seems quite possible that such highly precise objects like the granite boxes of the Nile River Valley could have been found by the dynastic Egyptians and repurposed as temples, coffins, and tombs. As humans, we have a long history of doing exactly that. The ancient pagan temples of the Romans are now Christian Catholic churches, and even the giant pyramids themselves have been found and repurposed by us in modern times as tourist destinations. If some far future archaeologist came upon the pyramids at the Giza Plateau and found a sign designating them as the property of the Egyptian Minister of Antiquities, would they believe that the curator of the Egyptology Museum at Cairo built those pyramids? Part 2. Machining, Polishing, and Hieroglyphs Much like the precision granite boxes, other similarly astounding objects exist and have been found at archaeological sites whose sheer perfection and complexity far outpace the capabilities and known tools of those civilizations we attribute them to. Tenured Egyptologists and archaeologists contend that such objects must have been made by the primitive tools used by the dynastic Egyptians because these are the tools they know those civilizations had. Since no other more technologically advanced tools have been found, the objects could have been made in no other way. This circular logic is the product of attributing the objects in question to the dynastic Egyptians simply because those objects are found in the archaeological sites known to have been the habitat of the ancient Egyptians. The idea that the Egyptians could have inherited the objects from an older but more advanced civilization is never taken seriously because that would call into question a long list of assumptions that textbooks, curriculums, and entire careers are built upon. As I said in Renegade Files Episode 2, The Great Pyramid at Giza, and Part 1 of this Egypt series of episodes, most archaeologists are not architects, engineers, or stonemasons. Anytime an architect, engineer, or stonemason looks at one of these objects, they immediately refute the idea that the object was made with copper chisels and stone hammers that we know to have been employed by the dynastic Egyptians. One such object is found at the Old Kingdom site of Abu Sir. It is a four-foot cube of basalt sitting just outside one of the pyramids at the site. The top of this block is perfectly flat and displays very fine circular saw marks that left grooves as it cut the stone. 
Basalt is an aphanitic extrusive igneous rock formed by the rapid cooling of low viscosity lava that is rich in magnesium and iron, and it is on the upper end of hardness, with a Mohs scale hardness of about 7, whereas a diamond, the hardest stone, is a 10. This block was not completely cut through, and at the uncut edge we see that the blade was only a few millimeters thick because it has left a thin ledge where the cutting blade stopped. Extrapolation of the arc left by the circular cut gives us a blade that was as much as 25 feet in diameter. That's a big saw. Copper is too soft to make a 25 foot diameter blade that is 3 millimeters thick, especially one that could cut through basalt. One granite slab at the Old Kingdom site of Abu Roash has the same circular saw marks left as the blade cut horizontally into this large slab. But the stone also displays a second layer of machining which created a subtle concave surface to the entire slab. Tube drills and their resulting stone holes and removed cores are also evidence of machining techniques not explained by the tools known in the Egyptian archaeological record. A tube drill or core drill functions in a very specific manner. Unlike a common drill which uses a solid bit fluted with a spiral groove which excavates the material as the drill bit burrows and thus creates a hole the size of the drill bit, a tube drill is a hollow shaft with a cutting leaning edge that cuts a core out of the material by drilling down and cutting a circular hole. These tube drilled cores display spiral grooves which indicate the numbers of times the tool revolved in the process of cutting down into the stones. Some calculations indicate a fixed drill would have to express downward pressure of 2 tons per square inch in order to make the spiral cut lines we see on the cores and the tube drills in such material as basalt, granite, and calcite. Some of the tube drills are massive, with diameters of 10 to 12 inches, while most are 3 to 4 inches. One Egyptology textbook shows one of these cores, but the image of the core in the photo is tilted so that the lines on the core appear to be horizontal and not spiraled. This is done to make it look like the object was drilled out in stages by some hand tool which was pressed into the stone line by line. Why would a textbook do such a thing? To maintain the status quo of two ideas. One, the Old Kingdom Egyptians did not possess advanced machinery or even the wheel much less a fixed drill that could press down at 2 tons per square inch using a tube drill bit hard enough to cut basalt. And two, that no previous civilization ever existed outside of the established timeline of human civilization given to us by our tenured academics. So rather than admit either of those things, or even admit that they're a possibility, they just tilt the photograph on the image shown in the textbook to make it look like it's something that it isn't, which matches their story. Shocking. Granite and diorite are very hard. It takes days of effort to grind away a very small amount of such stone. 
It doesn't matter how many slaves you have working on a project, the time it would take to grind a hand tube drill into a block of diorite cannot be sped up by having a hundred or even a thousand people taking turns doing it. In some cases, the surfaces of the granite boxes and diorite statues have been ground and polished to such a smooth finish that they reflect light. Reflecting light is not a natural property of diorite or granite. This takes an enormous amount of removal of material at ever increasingly fine layers. This glossy polished effect is most striking on the 24 giant granite boxes of the Serapium, deep below ground in the catacombs of Saqqara. Some of these boxes were never completely finished and there are a few that display the final stage of flattening before the last polishing. These box walls or tops reveal very small, evenly spaced scoring lines which indicate machining with a tool that operated at very high speeds. Furthermore, these incomplete boxes are in the same types of very tight granite rooms and like the complete boxes are too large to maneuver down the narrow hallways and galleries beyond which we find them, so once again we see clear evidence that the work of not only creating these large single piece granite boxes, but of grinding them to a mirror finish and polishing them to a high sheen was done deep underground and the catacombs and tunnels then built around them. What did they use for light, without suffocating or burning or asphyxiating themselves? There are no evidence of char, there's no soot. It's a mystery. Some of the boxes, and particularly the lids, show evidence of a liquid used to make the final smoothing of the stone. In places, this liquid seeped around the bottom corners and made the drops where it accumulated then fell on the undersides of the lid much smoother physically than the areas where whatever this liquid was did not drip to. This is not a varnish or a wax, but some liquid that we do not know of today. Today, our polished granite stones are made by increasingly fine applications of grit applied with mechanical polishing wheels in a process that takes days. The mainstream archaeology explanation for these finely polished boxes is formulated from the position of the known tools and materials found in the archaeological record. The official position is that these glossy surfaces were achieved by rubbing the boxes by hand with gravel and then dirt and then finer sand. To do this, you would need sand made from a material harder than the granite, or else the granite would simply grind the sand into dust. And even if the Old Kingdom Egyptians ground volcanic basalt into sand somehow, to be used as polish for granite, doing so would only be effective on a large flat surface. Many of the boxes display concave cups in the lid, and the diorite statues have very fine details such as toenails, eyes, and decorative headdresses. These surfaces, down to between the minuscule lines which adorn such details, are also polished to a mirror-like appearance. Doing so by rubbing sand would take diorite toothpicks and centuries of patience. In addition to this, these precision granite boxes and statues of various stone often have hieroglyphics carved onto them. These hieroglyphics are no doubt done by the Old Kingdom and Dynastic Egyptians. 
These hieroglyphs are used by Egyptologists to attribute the creation of the statues and boxes to the various pharaohs whose names are written in these glyphs. However, even a casual inspection reveals something startling. The interior surfaces of those hieroglyphs which show open planes, like the inside of a large bird or the sweep of a circle, and the backs and sides of the lines themselves reveal a very poor execution and finish when compared to the fine, glossy, perfect surfaces of the box or statues they are scratched into. Quite literally, these hieroglyphs look to have been chiseled and gouged out of the surfaces, scratching by a much more primitive hand, and scraped out leaving sketchy planes and lines that look like they were done by a kid with a hammer and a chisel he found in a dumpster. The technology and skill used to make the hieroglyphs on the statues and boxes isn't even in the same league as the technology used to create and finish those objects in the first place. Ironically, these hieroglyphs display the random striations and scrubby marks that handheld chisels make when pounded into hard stone such as this. Those are the same tools Egyptologists know to have been used by the dynastic Egyptians and it's what they say they also made the boxes from, and it's preposterous. Whoever made these objects obviously had the tools and skills to make smooth, polished surfaces, details, and adornments. Why then, when they carved the names of their highest, most revered kings into these objects, would they revert to their sloppiest, roughest workmanship? They would not. So that is one I'll give them. The hieroglyphs on the statues and boxes were carved by the dynastic Egyptians using copper chisels and stone hammers. But that's not how these fine precision boxes or statues were created. Just look at a few pictures of such objects and the hieroglyphics on them and see what you think for yourself. I'll put links to the best pictures for you in a free post on Patreon. You can see other free content there as well. I put free content on Patreon so you can see what it's all about. At any time, you can go beyond the free content, join the Renegade Files agency on Patreon, become an RFA agent, get access to tons of cool stuff, interact with me and other RFA agents, and help Renegade Files stay independent and ad-free. Click the Patreon link in the show notes. I've done a lot of work to make the Patreon page cool, and it's always free to look, so check it out. Thanks. Even the finest examples of hieroglyphics, such as the deep, crisp hieroglyphs carved into the pillars at Tanis, were done thousands of years after the pharaohs of the Old Kingdom, at a time when the dynastic Egyptians eventually developed iron tools, they were still carved by hand, and they display evidence as such. These late hieroglyphics show none of the machining marks we find on the granite boxes, and the Old Kingdom statues, which predate those iron tool carvings by centuries. Incidentally, many of the hieroglyphics at Tanis show shallow, circular cups in places. This was a method of deleting the hieroglyphic names of previous pharaohs. We then see Ramses II's bird glyphs squeezed into the writing at the edges or in random places outside of these circular deletions. This is a flagrant example of one pharaoh erasing another leader's name, then writing his own name over it, and it is the shaky evidence that mainstream historians use to attribute so many objects, constructions, and artifacts to Ramses II, who was, if nothing else, 
one of the greatest graffiti vandalists of all time. Part 3. Precision Ever-increasing precision has driven the technological advancements from measuring things in units of tenths of inches in the 1700s to measuring things by the width of atoms in the nanotechnology of microchips today. As a human culture, we drive innovation to increasingly fine levels of precision because precision is a correlate of function. Safer automobiles, faster computers, and smaller microchips all add to the increased ability to pack more functionality into our daily lives. Some of us can recall a time when cellular phones were as big as bricks or came in purses with six-pound batteries. For a time, cell phones kept getting smaller and smaller because the increasing precision of microchips was able to fit the same or more functionality into smaller packages. The smallest phones were the size of credit cards. Then, as wireless infrastructure developed to the point of streaming videos and transmitting photographs, and devices were made with color screens that quickly became handheld internet devices, the sizes of cell phones actually reversed, and phones, almost overnight, grew bigger. Why? Because of function. The human eye can only see things that are so small, so the phones needed screens to display pictures and videos worth viewing, so the phones got bigger. But that didn't mean that we went back to the old, bigger microchips just because they could now fit back into the phones. What it meant was that the devices could now hold even more power, more memory, more speed. We, as a species, simply do not create these increasingly powerful and staggeringly precise levels of precision for any reason except functionality. Once we have the processes and technologies, then they can be applied to art and creative decorative applications, but their genesis and evolution is always driven by functionality first. It is a total mystery that we find neither the sophisticated tools required to work stone at a precision of thousandths of an inch, nor the written records of that process employed to achieve such precision. At the same time, we find objects that display such a shocking level of precise design and fabrication that it could not have been the result of luck or accident. We have already discussed the precision granite megalithic boxes, 24 of which are to be found in the Serapium catacombs at Saqqara. In the previous section of the episode, we talked about how Flinders Petrie measured and was astounded by the perfection of these boxes in the early 1900s. Now we will briefly look at a few of these objects through the lens of modern tools. Manufacturing engineer Chris Dunn has measured some of these giant single piece boxes to have surfaces and edges that are to within 0.0001 inches or to within 1 the width of a human hair. Dunn moved the edge of a very expensive precision square calibrated as straight to within five one thousandths of an inch across vast expanses of these objects and not even light could pass at any point below the metal edge. Dunn found the interior floor and walls of these boxes to be perfectly square and parallel to not only each other but to the underside of the removable lid as well. 
And remember, these boxes are enormous. Some of these perfectly parallel faces are as much as 10 feet apart. And the boxes and their lids are all made from single pieces of granite. A single mistake would render the entire granite block ruined, or would at least force a reworking of the geometry of the entire box. And yet, they are perfect. And not just one, but dozens of them. All made from solid blocks of very hard stone, all perfectly straight to a degree we could scarcely accomplish today, and all underground in granite rooms so tight that the boxes barely fit inside them. From an article on his website, GizaPower.com, Chris Dunn writes, quote, An appreciation of these artifacts is lacking in archaeological literature and is only revealed by an understanding of what it takes to produce this kind of work. As an engineer and craftsman who has worked in manufacturing for over 40 years, and who has created precision artifacts in our modern world, in my opinion, this accomplishment in prehistory deserves more recognition. In addition to the boxes and statues, the remarkable collection of delicate stone vases, many of which are housed in glass cases in the Cairo Museum of Antiquities, display an uncanny degree of both precision and advanced technology. Tens of thousands of these vases and stone jars have been found, and they are associated with not only the very earliest ages of the first and second dynasties of ancient Egypt, but with the archaic and pre-dynastic periods as well. Remember that these archaic and pre-dynastic periods of the upper African continent are considered to be part of the Stone Age. The shapes, sizes, and types of stone used to make these jars are widely varied, from tiny, almost thimble-sized, to large enough to hold several gallons. All of them display incredible levels of symmetry and precision. Some of these objects are so perfectly symmetrical and balanced that they can stand perfectly upright despite having no flat bottom pad and we see them resting on the center tip of their curved bottoms, which match the circular curves of their three-dimensional sides. And yet, these objects are not simply balls, which would be the best way to achieve such balance, but they have fluted openings and two side handles. Some of the vases are so thin that they are translucent. Some have long, narrow necks yet the interior spaces are carved out with remarkable precision and the side walls are extremely thin, which is something that would be very difficult to do with the hard stones from which these objects are made. One bowl made from diorite is translucent and the material is full of inclusions and minute flaws, which makes the material extremely brittle. Yet, this six inch diameter bowl is only one fourth of an inch thick at its thickest sidewall spot. Some are made from obsidian, which is not only extremely hard but doesn't occur naturally in Egypt and would have had to have been brought there from a great distance away. One such precisely created vase is made from the stone corundum, which is a 9 on the Mohs mineral hardness scale, second only in hardness to a diamond, and a diamond is the densest material on earth. 
These objects are said to have been carved with copper chisels and stone hammers. About 40,000 of these intricate jars were found under the Step Pyramid at Josa, the very first pyramid. They are thought to have been funerary jars used to hold organs and fluids after embalming, and it is the case that they were used for such purposes. But when they were, they were closed with rough clay stoppers and lids. If the dynastic Egyptians created these fine precision vases in hyperdense stone, why would they not also fashion lids and stoppers for them in the same manner? especially when using them to embalm and entomb their pharaohs. Flinders Petrie once again concluded that the vases were evidence of work done with a lathe, which is an advanced application of the principles of the wheel, and modern Egyptologists still contend that the dynastic Egyptians had not yet discovered the wheel. Not only do the vases appear to have been created by a mechanical lathe, but some of the interiors suggest working with a fixed cutting tool that was centered at the same center of rotation as the spinning lathe itself. Established historians believe that the Egyptians first gained knowledge of the wheel in the second intermediate period, thousands of years after the dynasties of the Old Kingdom, under whose pyramid these stone vases were discovered. It wasn't until the Hyksos invaders arrived in wheeled chariots that the ancient Egyptians would have first seen the most rudimentary form of that technology, the technology used to create the vases attributed to their craftsmanship from a few thousand years earlier. It just doesn't add up. Finally, we have one of the most puzzling objects attributed to ancient Egypt, the Schist Disc. Found amid primitive knives in the mastaba of Prince Sabu of the first dynasty in the Old Kingdom. The name comes from the type of stone, schist, from which this object is made. The schist, that's S-C-H-I-S-T, disc, has been formed from a single piece of stone. It is perfectly round, displays an outside hoop, and three curved, strangely angled lobes that wrap back to face inward. It also has a central, hollow, cylindrical hub, and it is all made from one piece of stone. The schist disc is 24 inches in diameter and just over 4 inches tall or deep if it were a bowl. Schist is a hard but brittle metasilicone sedimentary rock often made into vases and bowls, but these are usually simple in design. The schist disc would have required a master skill to create with any tools, even today. It was discovered by famous archaeologist Walter B. Emery on January 10, 1936, and there are many theories about what it might have been. A mixing implement for food preparation, some device for spinning rope or even storing rope, a ceremonial bowl used to burn incense in the central hub with offerings around it in the three-lobed wings, there are other bowls from the same area that have similar curved inward lobes, but none as pronounced and deep as the schist disc. Some say it might be a propeller or an impeller, but the lobes don't look to be pitched to me, although it does look like some piece of machinery that's made to spin. The central hub looks exactly like what you would make to hold an axle of some kind, particularly when you remember that this entire thing is made from one solid piece of stone. In fact, 
the Cairo Museum has fashioned a wooden dowel which fits inside this hub to hold the disc up above its display case bottom so it can be seen from below, somewhat. You don't have to be an engineer to instantly recognize the precision and symmetry of this object. It seems too brittle to be a wheel for any kind of cart, and the same thing goes for a water-pushing propeller of some kind. Spinning discs with fins can create sonic vibrations. Think about the hum of a fan. There are theories that whoever built the pyramids manipulated stones using sonic vibrations or certain resonant frequencies. Maybe this was part of some such machinery. Since the schist type of stone used to make this disc is brittle, Egyptologists contend that the object could not have been part of any kind of advanced machinery and therefore it must have been for ceremonial use. They could be right about that. But it is a convenient conclusion for them because it fits neatly into their assertion that the Egyptians who made this object had not yet invented the wheel or its product extensions, the fan, the lathe, or the propeller. Regardless of what the schist disc was or is, it displays stunning symmetry and several complex design elements. The three lobes curve back toward the central disc hub. Each lobe is concave, as are the faces of the lobes. Their undersides flare out and curve back around to create a dished out plane under the lobes and up to the hub. The cylindrical hub protrudes from the center upward and is the same height of the tips of each lobed fin. You just gotta look at a picture of it. The entire disc is rimmed by a hoop, which looks like a bowl rim between the blades, but a steering wheel at the three spots where the lobes fold inward away from this outer edge. This makes it look like the object was bent and shaped out of a flexible clay, but it was actually fashioned from a single piece of stone. Every time I look at the schist disc, I have to remind myself of that, and each time I do, I'm amazed by it. My summary. Many of these objects are quintessential out-of-place artifacts. Out-of-place, that is, when we compare them to the established timelines of academic tradition up to this point. But if higher education and scientific study is to be revered for the valuable pursuit and beneficial contribution to society that it has been for centuries, then it must leave room for new ideas, new discoveries, and new ways to understand the world we live in. There was a time when all living scientists thought the Earth was the center of the solar system, and indeed the universe. And there was a time when all living scientists believed that the Earth was flat. Will we look back someday and say that there was a time when all mainstream scientists believed that the dynastic Egyptians carved granite boxes to within seven one thousandths of an inch of perfect using copper chisels? Technology moves forward and improves. It does not move backwards and become less refined. Why then are the older, deeper objects in ancient Egypt always the most advanced? When we find ancient artifacts that don't align with the tools and skills used by the people we think made them, the wrong thing to do is to just say they must have been made with those primitive tools because that's what we find those people to have used. When we read, in the words of the dynastic Egyptians themselves, them describing a vastly advanced and ancient civilization that far preceded them, 
why do we then simply say, oh, that must have been their gods and myths? A technologically advanced, very ancient civilization is a contradiction to the sacred cow of humanity's uninterrupted upward march from the Neanderthals to modern man, which is the dogma of our current academic institutions and the professors who guard it. Mainstream science has recently agreed with discoveries made by independent researchers which indicate a global cataclysm in the Younger Dryas period about 12,800 years ago when temperatures fell to between negative 45 and negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit for about 1,200 years. That would put a serious damper on any civilization. Some 6,000 years after this, Egypt was a grassland with nomadic tribes wandering the green valleys. It is quite possible that the dynastic Egyptians, whose kingdoms began some 3,200 years later than this grassland era, inherited many advanced sites and objects created by some technologically superior civilization who was essentially wiped out and put back to the Stone Age during the earth-changing climate of the Younger Dryas period. In fact, the ancient Egyptians themselves claimed that this was the case. A rewriting of history may be needed to account for such a civilization. This would not be the end of the world, no pun intended. We have done it many times when we have made new discoveries and found new theories to be provable through the scientific method. The longer established academia digs its heels in, the more foolish they will look from the future if ideas like an advanced technological civilization preceding the dynastic Egyptians becomes obvious. And I think that it's already obvious to many in the halls of archaeology or Egyptology, just like many truths are obvious to members of large organizations, but the official viewpoint, after traveling through committees and PR reps, becomes watered down, full of concessions and compromises, as to not offend the old guard or the fragile ears of the juvenile public. In the end, there is a time and place for respecting what the experts say, but there is also a time and place to see the guarded status quo for what it is when it no longer satisfies the evidence. There is a word for old ideas once they have been replaced by obvious reason. That word? Outdated. And the best way to know that you are talking about an outdated idea is when you hear those defending it start to scream, pseudoscience fringe thinking, and the dreaded conspiracy theory. When bloggers view the detailed analysis of an ancient granite box done by an architect using state-of-the-art precision measuring tools, then try to align his mathematical findings with the ancient lizard people running the government crowd, then you know that blogger has some agenda to keep things as they are or they just bleed for the professors they loved so much while they were getting their BA in history. Look at these ancient precision objects with your own eyes. In the dark intel files, I have a picture of a precision granite box next to one carved by the Old Kingdom Egyptians with hammers and chisels. They're about the same size and dimensions. But when you see the two next to each other, it is painfully obvious that they were made by two different levels of technology, skill, and methods. It's like looking at a tree fort built by 10-year-olds next to a Frank Lloyd Wright house. The differences in technology and precision are instantly realized in a glance. 
You can also watch some of the videos I have for you on our Patreon page so you can see these objects for yourself and let me know what you think. And be sure to check out Ben at Uncharted X if you want to dig even deeper into ancient mysteries and megalithic sites. I'll link to his channels in the show notes also. In the end, I feel like we are looking at some advanced civilization which left these artifacts, which are in turn discovered then utilized by the ancient Egyptians. As I said before, this kind of reapplication goes on to this day. When architects and highly skilled craftsmen look at these stone vases we attribute to the Old Kingdom, then they say, yep, that was made on a lathe. <laughs> then archaeology professors say, nope, it wasn't. And when you ask them why not, they just say, because we have never found a lathe or even its predecessor, the wheel, in the sand under a pyramid or in what we know to be ancient Egypt. So even though an expert stonemason says the objects display characteristics of lathe work, of which they are experts and I am not, they must still be wrong because we cannot find a lathe in the dirt in Egypt. Okay, thanks professor. But is it then not possible that someone made the vase before the Old Kingdom and that those tools are long gone, but the vases and granite boxes are still here because they are made from granite and diorite and they have simply lasted? That's where my money is anyway. Thank you so much for coming back to Ancient Egypt with me. Be sure to subscribe or follow the show now and meet me here every 10 days to go on another adventure. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, pirate child. <laughs>